I'm conductor and creator Timothy Myers, and I can't stop chasing the question, what would the world look like with more listening? This is Listening on Purpose. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Today's guest is the amazing Chip Conley. I don't even know where to start with this because Chip is such an incredible guy and is up to amazing things. His latest book is called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. His story is fascinating and how he came to write this book and, and, and to conceive of this idea as a modern elder, um, you know, someone who has life experience and who can be in a company and giving that experience to younger generations, but also at the same time, taking advantage of what those younger generations can teach the older ones and how to have really empowered relationships across generations. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about his Modern Elder Academy, his um, initiative called Generations Over Dinner, lots of great stuff. He just drops so many wisdom bombs in this in this episode. It's incredible. I was really grateful to be able to catch up with him at South by Southwest this year, and this is a conversation we had in Austin during South by around uh, my kitchen table. So anyway, enjoy it. Glad you're here. I'm just going to kind of bare my soul a little bit here. You know, when I requested this interview, I was familiar with some of your work and Mm -hmm. it started reading your book and I didn't realize quite how in the middle of this I was. (laughs) I'll be 48 in August. So when you give a number like (laughs) 47.2 being the bottom of that and, and it really relates to or, or you, you know, the Jungian philosophy of you like Mm -hmm. the first half of your life with with ego. The second with the soul and i really am i'm there yeah right yeah. so this is just it, it started to feel really really personal when i was preparing for this and so i'm, I'm excited i'm a little nervous and so i'm just really excited to be <laughs> sitting fun. here with Let's you have fun. so i mean you've you've written several books your most recent one wisdom at work which is structured around an inflection point that you had in your life, a big one. And your shift from being a CEO of a company that you had founded to being a different kind of contributor. And I'm wondering if you can just kind of bring us into that story a little bit for context. Sure. I I had a dark night of the soul that lasted about four years from age 45 to 49. And during that time, everything in my life sort of was crumbling, falling apart, unraveling, whatever whatever metaphor you want to use. And I, I had a flatline experience. I actually died nine times over 90 minutes uh, because of an allergic reaction to an antibiotic. And and that was really my hotelier wake-up call. I was a hotelier. Mm-hmm. I had started a boutique hotel company, one of the first in the US, and it was growing very large. And I didn't want to do it anymore. And I didn't know how to extricate myself. So ultimately, the flatline experience really said to me, I could die tomorrow, you know, and I want to really feel present mm. with my life. Yeah. So I ultimately made a bunch of changes in my life. And around age 50, I was no longer in a relationship, no longer in the company that I had been running for 24 years, and no longer really clear on what was next for me. Mm. And uh, I, in essence, went into a liminal state to be in between two things. And I was not comfortable with it exactly because there was no place for me to turn to other than my best friend being a coach. And she helped me through that time. Yeah. She was like my midwife for midlife. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and yeah. And then, then all of a sudden out of the blue, I got a call from the uh, co-founder and CEO of Airbnb, Brian Chesky, asking me if I'd be his in-house mentor and help them democratize hospitality. And this was over a decade ago. And most people had never heard of the company and I joined them and that was quite a journey. And I, I found my fifties to be my best decade of my life. Mm. I'm now 62 and a half. But still going strong. Still going strong. And I, I mean, I'm loving, loving my sixties as well. So, yeah. but I can say that the, that what was very clear to me is how different my forties were from my fifties. And, uh, you know, we were talking a moment ago about the fact that uh, Carl Jung and Richard Rohr, uh, the famous Christian mystic who happens to be an MEA alum. We'll talk about the Modern okay, Elder yeah, Academy later. Will, for sure. 
both of them say that the first half of our life, the primary operating system for our life is the ego. And the second half of our adult life, it's our soul. And I think that's true. And I think that for many people, they just don't know what are the operating instructions for this new operating system. Yep. It's like teaching someone, hey, I've taught you automatic, and now I'm going to let you do stick shift, right. but I'm not going to train you, <laughs> right. and I'm going to do it in the middle of your life, <laughs> right. and you're yeah. going to look like an idiot while you're trying to learn. Uh, and so that was what was going on for me, but it was also incredibly liberating because the moment you can sort of say to yourself, I don't have to look good doing this. Yeah, yeah. I can just be a learner and a beginner. Mm. It, it takes some of the pressure off. Yeah, I really relate to that. You talk about like the beginner's mind, mm. right? And mm. I think this is one of the most important concepts in in life, I think. And we were talking a little bit about kind of where I am in my life. I know you know Arthur Brooks, yes. who I had an opportunity to meet when I was studying at HBS, enjoyed his book. And, you know, he talks about that moving from fluid intelligence to crystallized intelligence yes. and, and, and about you, you want to make that jump right to set you set yourself up for success what is it about your 60s or you know the the distinction between that you just made between your yeah. 40s yeah. and your 50s that was so significant or is so significant for you well i think there's a lot of things and i and actually i'm working on a new book uh that'll come out next january called learning to love midlife oh, the 12 reasons sign me up. why yeah exactly <laughs> the 12 reasons why uh life gets better with age so i think that a few of the things that actually got better in my 50s uh, everything from yes, I was less egocentric. I was more. I I felt more in a role of service, mm -hmm. and I didn't take things quite so personally. As a result, uh, I think I also started to realize that I was no longer playing on the playing field of my body. It didn't mean I wasn't going to focus on my body, yeah. but I got a little less fixated on how am I looking. So there, there was certainly that. I think I started to see this emotional intelligence growing in me, yeah. and. I think one of the things that we really dismiss in midlife is all of the things we've learned along the way. And because you're so close to these things, you don't see how valuable they are until, as I was at Airbnb, you're surrounded with people half your age who are enamored with some of the things that you think are obvious. Right. But they're not so obvious to someone who's half your age. And um, so I, I would just say wisdom, the the development of of wisdom and the, and, and me, the tangibility of it, mm -hmm. the value of it. I could go on and on, but I, I think that for so many reasons, there was a real sense that I was better able to discern what was important in life. Mm. More than anything, I felt a, a real sense that the kinds of things like I am what I do, or I am what you say about me, or I am what I control, or I am what I own, those things which defined the first half of my adult life got replaced by I am what survives me. And this is a statement from developmental psychologist Eric Erickson. And I think it's very relevant for people after age 50. And it's certainly defined me uh, the last 12 years. I want to get to wisdom right? That you just kind of brought us to as, mm -hmm. as being an important thing. And of course, this is what the book is about. And I I grew up in an evangelical Christian oh. um, context. So yeah. that, that, you know, for, so for, where, for where, me, where was that? In Kansas, in central Kansas. Oh my yeah. gosh. Well, you and Richard Rohr have something in <laughs> yeah. common. Oh, really? Well, he's not evangelical. He didn't have any, he's not that now. He wasn't that then. Mm -hmm. But he's from Kansas. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I hope we intersect. Yeah. Kansans are in the strangest places. You wouldn't believe it. Yeah. But, I, you know, so for me, an elder was, yeah. you know, in, in the, the church, church right? Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and wisdom was something that came from God <laughs> or from one of those elders, right? So, obviously, this is a huge paradigm shift. I mean, to mm -hmm. talk about it the way you are. But if you could just give us a kind of a working definition, what would it be? My working definition of wisdom is metabolized experience. In other words, life lessons. Metabolized experience that leads to distilled compassion. Mm. So unpacking that, the metabolized experience means like, how do you sort through what you're learning along the way? Take it in, digest it in a way that allows you to use that knowledge and wisdom, that life experience in the future. But if it's only that, and it doesn't have the second part of this definition, then that just means you're shrewd or savvy. 
Right. And wisdom is a common good. It is a social good. Uh, for thousands of years now, wisdom has been defined as something that actually is good for society. So it better have a purpose that's beyond just being savvy for your own selfish needs. So that's why metabolize experience, which leads to distilled compassion. What is distilled compassion? So compassion we know, and I think people can say, okay, compassion is the natural uh, follow through of wisdom. Great. But what's distilled compassion? Distilled compassion to me means when you have someone wise offering you something that is of value to you, it feels like it's been distilled just for you. Mm. It feels personalized and customized. Yeah. As opposed to just some universal truths, no, this actually felt like it was compassionate just for you. And so when someone feels wisdom or they feel like they're in the presence of wisdom, it often feels like it's not just that person has so much sage advice, but they have so much sage advice just for you. Yeah. And so that's what I think of as wisdom. And that's my definition. And you know, I, I I like writing books, and I have a I have a daily blog called Wisdom Well. Yeah. Uh, so I'm fascinated by wisdom because I think we live in an era where knowledge is abundant and yeah. frankly commoditized, and what's scarce is wisdom. Well, it's interesting you say that. I want to talk more about that, but before I want to duck back to something you mentioned. Yes. About digesting. Yes. Right, because that's a it's you're you're very clear in the book about uncollapsing these ideas of knowledge and wisdom. And just because you have an experience doesn't mean yeah. that you've grasped the wisdom part of it. So yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. So you could have a 70 year old and a 30 year old, but the 30 year old's wiser. Yeah. And why is that? It's because the 70 year old could be doing the same thing over and over again, not learning a damn thing from it. And frankly, sort of just thinking that their war stories are wisdom. And But if you don't understand anything from your war story, if you didn't really learn something from it, all it's serving is you having the ability to bore someone else with your stories. <laughs> so, uh, and we know people like that, right? Yeah. So hmm. I, I learned wisdom at age 28. I was a CEO, two, two years into being a CEO of a small boutique hotel company. And I uh, it's called Joie de Vivre, um, mm -hmm. based in San Francisco. And to be quite honest, I was clueless. I, I was running a company. We were in trouble. I was like, oh my God, I'm so stupid. So one day I, I, on a weekend, I sat down and I wrote down on the cover of an, uh, a diary that I had that I'd never written in. I said, my wisdom book. Mm -hmm. And I started a practice that weekend of writing down four to eight different bullet points of what I'd learned that week and how it would serve me moving forward. I spent a half hour doing it. And I, I started that practice and I kept it going. Yeah. And what I want to say in relative to this example of the 30-year-old versus the 70-year-old, if you are 28 years old and you're starting to do that, by the time you're 32 or 34 or 35, you've built up some metabolized experience that you have digested. And so I think what we I like to ask is how do we help people to accelerate and cultivate their uh, wisdom in such ways that they can harvest it for themselves and others. Yeah. So yes, I don't think that uh, wisdom is necessarily directly correlated to age. Right. Thank goodness. You do have the raw materials. I will say this. The advantage of someone older is you have raw materials, life experience. But if you're not, it's like someone going to the, into the kitchen and being a terrible chef. The fact they have the raw materials, but they don't know what to do with them, doesn't right. that mean that they're going to actually create a, a beautiful feast. You know, wisdom has been something that's been accepted, right? And in 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 a lot of cultures, especially in in, cer in certain cultures, something that's you know prized and passed yeah. down. Yep. And it reminds me, sort of, of my career as a musician. You know, I had the great fortune to be a protege of a, one of the you know top conductors in the world, wow. Lauren Mazel, and you know who had known Arturo Toscanini, who you know conducted premieres of Puccini operas. And, yeah. and, and so I think as a musician, I really relate to that because that's what we do. It's this craft mm. that's passed down yes. from person to person. Yeah. Like an apprenticeship. Yeah, it yeah. really is. And right. And you just like, I get chills right now thinking about it, like yeah. how cool it was to have that experience and to, and to be able to soak it up and yeah let it mesh with your personality and then how you start to think about things. What is the danger of not mining and then sharing our wisdom? 
one danger is someone doesn't mine it properly and therefore it's not worth much. The alternative is someone does mine it, but then they don't share it. And I think that we have a lot, we have a situation in the US where we have age apartheid and we have a real segregation of people by ages generally you know if you if you're you're retired you go into a retirement community yeah it's sort of like there's three stages of life there's the learning stage which takes you up to about 25 then there's the earning stage that takes you up to 60 or 65 and then there's the adjourning stage the burning stage where you <laughs> go and live in a retirement home and they're sort of age segregated and i think that what's sad is that when you, there's somebody who's got the kernels of beautiful wisdom, but not the people to share it with. I'm hopeful that we're moving in a direction where that's going to improve. There are enough people out there I know who are looking at this question of intergenerational collaboration. And I think in music, uh, we see it a lot. Music's one of those fields in the world where I think we see it more than elsewhere. Lady Gaga Mm. and Tony Bennett and just, you know, jazz greats with, you know, the young, young jazz leaders. So I think there's a lot of opportunity here And I think my experience with Airbnb was a perfect example of that. Brilliant young designers and technologists who had an idea, but they were so focused on certain things, they had no idea of the peripheral vision, the crystallized intelligence to see how to connect the dots to make this work. Nor did they understand the industry, hospitality and travel that they were disrupting. Right. Nobody in the company actually had that background. So I brought to the table that synthetic thinking, that holistic thinking, and that expertise in that particular industry. And in some ways I was, as Brian would call me, the secretary of state. I was like mm. the elder states, statesperson for the company when they were going out and being a disruptor and people needed to sort of say, are these guys just crazy young people or is there something to this? And then Chip would show up and say, hey, you know what? There is something to this. Right. What was the draw in hospitality? And right, and when Brian asked you to come to Airbnb, right, they wanted to make this transition from just being a tech company to actually being a hospitality yeah. company. You had a long history in hospitality before that. I'm I'm really curious what's behind that. Is it creating a sense of belonging? Well, it- so I mean, ultimately, with Airbnb, we our mantra became belong anywhere. So. Belonging is deeply embedded in my soul as an important part of our lives as humans. Mm. But I think for me, when I started the company when I was 26, uh, what someone once called me was they called me a social alchemist. So I'm a mixologist of people. (laughs) So to know how to create a dinner party or a hotel lobby or a restaurant that feels like it's been mixed properly. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> in a way that really enhances maybe life life changing conversations. This is actually what we do at the Modern Elder Academy, which we'll talk about. I think that I got pretty clearly early on that I enjoyed this. I had a talent at this, and that the world needed more of it. Mm. And that's why I called my company Joie de Vivre. You know, joy yeah. of life. I wanted to say that our mission statement as a company to great joy was the same thing as our name. Yeah, yeah. And in so doing, I started to see that my talent at being a people pleaser, which is way down in my DNA, allowed me to be successful as a Stanford MBA who, while I was in business school, felt like I was maybe a little bit too idealistic, too soft, you know, in Mm. terms of what I liked to do. And I wanted to I wanted to help change the world, make people feel good. And that didn't necessarily always fit within the an MBA curriculum. But starting a boutique hotel company and then being in the hospitality field over the course of now 40 years almost, I felt really at home. You're involved with this project called Generations Over Dinner. Yes. Which I think is a really great thing and has inspired me to start thinking about how we could put one together. I guess for me, one of the dangers is, is if we don't kind of glean this wisdom from Mm -hmm. people, it's a, it's a net loss. Mm -hmm. Generations over dinner seems like this really, (laughs) really cool thing. So uh, tell me a little more about that. It's meant to be a global initiative. Uh, I started it with my friend, Michael Hebb, who started death over dinner. So he was the the brainchild behind a movement called Death Over Dinner that's had over a million people sit at a dinner and have conversations, curated conversations around death. 
Michael's uh, on the faculty at the Modern Elder Academy. And I, I said to him, like, well, how could we take that, what you've done with Death Over Dinner and apply it to intergenerational conversations, like mm. to create a new generational compact? Mm. And we came up with the idea of Generations Over Dinner, where if you go to the Generations Over Dinner website, you will see there's a, there's a bunch of different topics you can go into and then series of questions under each topic. And what we've seen that's been so beautiful is to realize the universality mm -hmm. across generations uh, around some topics, as well as the lessons learned that right. can sometimes go from older to younger, but also how older people can learn from younger people around cultural issues, te technology issues, new lifestyle trends. And uh, so I, I've loved it. We've had as many as seven generations at wow. a dinner table wow. uh, or at a lunch table in three different places that I'm aware of. I was at one of them, which was in uh, Tel Aviv, Israel. Amazing. We had another one uh, at Generations Over Lunch in Denver, Colorado. And then we had a dinner at in the Blue Mountains of Australia mm. of seven people. Uh, so we have, we've had thousands of dinners happen around the world around the Generations Over Dinner idea. Yeah. That's really amazing. I, I love how that gives an opportunity for for it to go both ways. And you talk about that a lot in the book is like, you know, for example, if you were in, you know, a working environment mm -hmm. uh, that this go, it's not just the modern elder, mm -hmm. you know, who's in that situation giving something that this is a really circular it's reciprocal. thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's a reciprocity. And I think that's what makes it interesting because, you know, the modern. So what is the what is a modern elder? Let's define that term yeah, for a second. Great. So modern elder, when I was at Airbnb, they started calling me the modern elder. I wasn't sure I liked it at first. But what I appreciated is they said that our definition of modern eldership is someone who's as curious as they are wise. Hmm. You're a great listener. I was like, oh, okay, thank you. I like to listen. I like to be curious. And so the fact is, if someone's going to be as curious as they are wise, that means they're going to be a, both a mentor and an intern. Yeah. And I define someone who's a mentor and an intern as a mentor. Mm -hmm. And a mentor is somebody who understands the alchemy of when do you need to be in the learning mode and when are you in the teaching mode? And I think we all should be like that our whole lives. Uh, and... So that's really what I've tried to do with the Modern Elder Academy is create the world's first midlife wisdom school dedicated to helping people learn how to ask great questions yeah. of themselves and others, uh, but also learn how to cultivate and harvest the wisdom they've learned along the way. Hmm. I want to go deeper on this listening thing, of course. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the name of the podcast gives that away. Uh, but, you know, my why of you know, when I started looking at the practice of listening outside of the concert hall, mm -hmm. you know, of course, as a conductor, that's the primary thing I do yeah. is, is listen. But then I realized that outside of the concert hall, I wasn't necessarily very good at it. Mm. And so for me, it's one of those things of when I'm not doing something well, it's time to deep dive, mm. right? And mm. sort of expose myself, mm. even in a raw way sometimes to just, mm -hmm. you know, get on it. And for me, it also came kind of at, at this time where I am in my life, where I'm mm. starting to think about things. I have a six-year-old and almost four-year-old mm. and thinking about what's for them. Yeah. Right. And what are we, what are we leaving for them and looking at the world and saying, this is not cool the way a lot of things are happening. Yep. And this doesn't, this doesn't have workability. Mm. And then trying to impact that. And for me, it's just the idea that listening is the gateway, mm. right? And to yeah. getting, to starting to create under, understanding in any area. Yeah. You know, Jimi Hendrix famously said, knowledge speaks and wisdom listens. Mm. And the wisest animal or bird in the forest is, is the owl. And it's not because it can turn its head around 360 degrees or says who, but it's because it actually has the greatest listening skills. Mm -hmm. So listening and wisdom have something in common. And I, I, I've learned along the way that, you know, listening, not just listening to the story, it's also listening, listening for the story of the person that you're listening to. Meaning, meaning, and again, this is crystallized intelligence. Mm -hmm. How do you make sense of, and connect the dots of what someone's saying, even if the thing that is most obvious to you 
they haven't said. Right, right. And that's really listening for the story. Try to understand it and maybe ask questions then using appreciative inquiry, which is a method of asking questions that we're very, very enamored with at the Modern Elder Academy. You you do that well and yeah. a, per, a person feels respect. Yeah. And that's really, I mean, especially in the era that we live in right now with this, this so polarized and people arguing left and right about this or that, to feel respected even by someone who may not have the same opinion you have mm-hmm. is a gift. Yeah. 20 years ago, it probably wasn't as much of a gift as right. it is today. So if you want to be a gift giver in life, you learn how to listen better, especially to the people who you don't understand. Right. Because, wow, if you don't understand them, you might learn something by listening. That sense of making someone feel heard mm-hmm. is extraordinarily powerful. Mm. And in the book, uh, you talk about it, I believe, in relation to uh, you know, younger people that we were working with at Airbnb. And I, I you use the term full body listen, yes. right? That you would, if you notice something and you maybe pull them aside or, you know, schedule some time with them and, and you say, give them a full body listen. Yeah. And I, I'm just curious. What does that mean? What that, what that means? There's three ways to listen. There's the internal listening and I'll talk, oh, we'll come back to that because that's what that's what that refers to. Then there's the listening one-on-one with someone else. And are you, acknowledging what you're hearing mm-hmm. uh, are you using active listening skills mm-hmm. and then there's listening to the field yeah. and being able and which a conductor better be damn good at <laughs> yeah. listening to the field means being able to take it all in yeah and yeah. understand the gestalt of it all yeah but the full body listening it, the way i think of it is the first kind of listening it's like listening to your what's going on inside your body mm-hmm. in terms of both your the gut instinct piece your goose goosebumps the yeah. you know the skin what's it telling you and the full body listen to me is when you're exceptionally present and there's there's no part of you that is actually distracted everything is tuned in yeah to what this person's saying so yes to give a full body listen to someone else is exam is doing the first two things one is listening inside to listening to the other person Listen to the other person and then feeling what that's telling you inside. A full body lesson really is, I think the best way to describe it for me is it's opening the channel of my intuition in mm-hmm. a way that allows me to hear someone deep, more deeply than the words they're using. Not just because I'm sort of t- tapping into the tonality or the emotions, but more because it, I'm really intuiting the story that's not actually coming out yet. And so now you have to be careful with that a little bit because you can then come across as being a therapist. If you sort of like, oh, you know what? You're just not talking about this. Here's what's really going on for you. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, leading the witness. Yeah, leading the witness. (laughs) That is not listening. That is cajoling. Right. Yeah, so I think for me, the best way to describe it is is my listening and are my questions meant to serve the other person mm. or are they meant to serve m- me showing how smart I am? And yeah. that's a really important piece of this is if they're meant to serve the other person, my ego sort of gets out of the way. Yeah, man, that's huge. And I re- I, re- I appreciate that related it to a physical sensation. I was speaking to a team in Miami last week and this doing this, session I do called leadership through listening. Mm. And I was talking with them about a, one of the lenses for listening that I've been working with. And the the first one is uh, listening for silence. Mm. And this really took off of uh, a book mm. called Golden uh, that is by Lee Mars and Justin Zorn. And it's really fascinating because what they did was they disassociated silence and the absence of noise. For example, one of their research participants found his silence when he was using a chainsaw to carve giant wooden sculptures, Mm -hmm. but meaning that that was when he was at most at peace in Mm -hmm. himself and how that's an element of listening because it's of of just being able to quiet oneself enough that you can actually really interact with that person. 
And you reminded me of that. Are you a meditator? Yes. And do you, is that an important thing for you in kind of establishing uh, that baseline? Yeah. Often if you're going into a, a video or audio studio, they sort of like have this period where they ask everybody to be silent for a period of time just mm-hmm. to sort of set the... the Get some room noise or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I have always found that interesting when I'm in a recording session because it's like, okay, you're asking everybody to be silent. And that's what I do when I meditate is I I, I meditate silently. Yes, do I sometimes meditate with someone doing visualization for me. Yes, I do that as well. But where I, what I enjoy most is when I'm meditating silently, uh, sometimes with a mantra, uh, mm-hmm. which is, which is, comes from my TM practice. Uh, and what it does, is it just stills everything. Yeah. And there's just a, it's like having the shaken up snow globe and you just put it on the, on mm-hmm. the desk. Yeah. And all of a sudden all the flakes just come down to the, to the, uh, bottom and, you can see through it. I yeah. mean, the truth is most of our life, we we are living a shaken up snow globe and life, it's really hard to, to have a clarity yep. that allows yep. you to see through that snow globe. So yeah, meditation is a, for me a practice that helps me sort of set the audio yeah. in my life. And uh, at walking in nature is another thing I do frequently. I call it spying on the divine where <laughs> I, I go that. with my dog, Jamie, and we go into nature and we just look for the divinity of what's available to be seen in nature. I love that. So I'm a, an ambivert. So I'm someone who was an introvert when I was young. I Elevated into being elevated. I don't know if it's elevation or not, but I I learned how to become an extrovert and I became an extreme extrovert. And as I've gotten older, uh, moving into the soul part of my life, I have found myself moving back to being an introvert at times. So an ambivert is somebody who is the combination of extrovert and introvert. And it's just the alchemy. You know, you know, at any one, one time, what do I need a little bit more of? Yeah. Dose that up or dose that down? I've never heard ambivert before. That's really interesting. I, you know, I had this experience probably a year and a half or two years ago where I was, a friend suggested that I take a personality test or two. And so I had never <laughs> taken, uh, I'd never done Myers-Briggs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in my mid forties doing Myers-Briggs for the first time, and it just immediately spiked that I was an introvert. Hmm which really caught me off guard, but it it was the, I, I'm not kidding. When I say, when I read this, I had the, the sense of being heard and understood Mm. because I thought I, there's no way I'm an introvert because I'm in front of people all the time. I'm a performer. I'm like, Mm -hmm. you know, speaking to, you know, audiences and raising money and, you know, blah, 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 all of this. And when I really understood that, there's a reason why after I have these, you know, a giant rehearsal or something or a performance that I just go home and sit here at the kitchen table and drink some wine and watch YouTube videos about boats I'll never be able to afford, right? Yeah. Just because I, I that's what, right? Because I have to recharge because I've just yeah. been completely yep. tapped out. It was a great experience and I'm so glad I did it. It mm-hmm. gave me a, a much, a greater context for myself to kind mm-hmm. of understand some things and yeah. And feel okay. The most important thing we can understand in life is ourselves. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it, when you do that, life becomes so much simpler. Yeah. Because we, we really, frankly, are brought up to have a script. A script is handed to us by our parents. Yeah. Or our, our community or whomever, society. And you start reading from the script and you, you may be a leading actor or actress, but it's not your script. It's not yeah. your script. You're not the screenwriter. Yeah. And yeah. what we need to do is to learn how to be the screenwriter of our lives a little bit more in in ways that sometimes can be really difficult for people. So it could be that you, you were socialized as I was to be an extrovert because I was very much of an introvert as a kid and I felt a little embarrassed. Mm-hmm. My parents were going to send me to therapy uh, at age 10 and it's like, oh my God, uh, what did I do wrong? Right, right. What's Therapy sounds like therapy? prison. Yeah. And I I really got to a place of say, seeing it as I got older, it's like I've spent a lot of my life living 
someone else's script. And I've gotten really good over the course of my years of uh, getting clear on my own script. Mm -hmm. But I can see that sometimes when I'm a little bit off kilter, I go back to the script that's habitual, which is one that I learned from my parents. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I I love the fact that I now know if I'm doing we're we're here for South by Southwest. I'm doing many many speeches and panels here, so I retreat back to my my condo here. I have a, I live here part time, and I love just the solitude there. Yeah, yeah. and I write, so I'm a writer. I love writing and. Yeah. The process of writing is my way of like shutting out that extroversion world. And so what a surprise. I, when I was a kid, I was a writer, but I felt from my parents like that's not a noble profession. Mm. And so I did everything I could to walk away from my writing. But I would say it's the thing that is my hobby slash career that I most enjoy today. And I felt that way for the last 25 years writing books, mm. you know, multiple books. So I'm, but I had to actually get back to a place of saying, yeah, I like writing yeah, <laughs> and I like the introversion of writing. And I have other friends who are writers who are really born extroverts and they have a really hard time with writing. Right. Right. For all the reasons you could imagine. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I really, related to the story in your book about Melina oh, yeah. who was a teacher turned mm -hmm. entrepreneur yeah. and what you were just talking about reminds me of really understanding what your true passion is mm -hmm. and how to really let it shine yeah. and for her she loved teaching but her passion was being stifled by the yeah. the strictures of the institution yeah I, I really related that to kind of what I'm doing with the podcast and some of these other projects is finding a way to have complete control over creative expression, mm -hmm. right? As a conductor, of course, I, I mean, I work at the behest of institutions and orchestras who are generous enough to play, yes. for, you know, for me and with me, but being able to sort of transcend myself, all of those strictures is something that in this part of life is really, really important to me. That's maybe a revelation you might not have had five years ago. And it's been a journey over the yeah. past few years to understand that and mm -hmm. say, because conducting is, I mean, it's chip. It's one of those things when I'm doing it, I'm like, I'm born to mm -hmm. do this. Right. Like it just, it feels natural. And I, I love music. I love music so much that I don't really listen to very much music outside of when I'm working oh, wow. because like for you, like, I, I mean, the silence for me is, is you love it. I it's remember exquisite. it's yeah. exquisite. And I yeah. remember in graduate school when I was just, you know, you're just everything in your life is about music. Mm. You know, I mean, from the mm. early in the morning when you go and warm up on your instrument and they go in and I would go back to my apartment and I would sit in a chair and I would wait for the moment the refrigerator motor would turn off. Yeah. Well, you turned off your refrigerator yeah, mo I know, I motor as we went fridge. into this podcast episode. So <laughs> clearly that hasn't happened to me before. But Hey, everybody. It's Tim. My team and I work really hard to make this show meaningful for all of you. And we'd love to hear from you about what you're liking and also what you might want more of. I'm easy to find on Instagram at Moti Myers, that's M-O-T-M-Y-E-R-S, and always happy to hear from you via email, that's timothy at timothymyers.com. Also, if you're enjoying what you're hearing and would be willing to leave a rating and a review or pass on to a friend, that helps a lot. Back to the show. In the book you talk about questions yes. this is something you mentioned earlier but this is something that's super practical right for listeners to just be like okay i can do that now yep. and you talk about asking catalytic questions yeah. and what are and this relates to what you said earlier about when you're in a conversation are the questions i'm asking to make me look smart right. or to actually Serves. peel away yeah. a layer and reveal something else yeah. that can contribute to the conversation. So the, uh, so we use the appreciative inquiry method at the Modern Elder Academy, and which is based upon the premise that questions can actually lead to 
it's like a it's like a flashlight on potentialities. So what does that mean? Uh, often you could have questions that shut a person down, mm-hmm. or that are yes no answers, not open ended, or that are critical. Yeah. But this is the opposite of that. This is saying, how could you ask a question in such a way that helps a person to see the possibility and the potential in something? Mm. And so I, you know, I, I'm a big believer in it because it's it's sort of like having being on a journey with someone. It's like, uh, have you considered this? Or, you know, tell me what does that feel like in your body when you imagine what this is going to look like three years from now? Mm-hmm. You know, this the idea that you help a person to sort of see their path and to see the potentiality is allows them to have some, see, you might have some confidence that they can actually live up to that. And this is not about being uh, Pollyanna it, it, because it's, it, it is meant, the, the questions are meant to serve and they're not meant to just say, you're right, you're right. But they are meant to sort of ask, like if someone's someone who's, if there's someone who's typically in their heart a lot, I like to ask questions that help people to get into their head. Mm. So like, so what's an example oh, of that? So someone who has a tendency to like, oh, talk about how much they love this or that, or they, they, it, it's a dream for them. It's like, okay, so what are the first three steps you can take mm. to actually start living that out? Yeah. Now that's a question you'd ask to someone who's actually naturally in their heart. For someone who's naturally in their head, they can sometimes actually be in a maze the mm. maze of their brain and the, like a, the, the ghetto of the neighborhood of the brain where the question that I would love to ask there is like, so what's your heart telling you? Or, you know, what does your intuition say that this is going to look like three years from now? Yeah. Or, you know, what, what emotion would serve you best right now to actually help you get to your goal? Mm. And those are not questions that if someone who's in their mind often would ask themselves. So the value of appreciative inquiry is you're asking questions that a person probably would not have come up with on their own. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And that takes a real, that takes a real commitment, right? Uh, uh, Does. Of intentionality. Yeah. It has to be, you know, serving the other person, but also over the course of asking questions, understand what will serve them. Right. Because if someone's in their brain, and they're like sort of in a in a in a doom loop in their brain around something. Asking them something else that's going to keep them in the doom loop won't be helpful. So mm. helping them to move outside of that doom loop to sort of say, okay, let's take the, a different angle here. So it's really just helping people to have a different perspective. For those who are interested, I would just Google appreciative inquiry, and you'll learn more about it. Okay, that's amazing. Let's talk about Modern Elder Academy because yes. I think this is the coolest thing, and yeah. I'm Thank you. bound and determined to find one that I can that I can come to. Yeah, uh, workshop at some point. So the the premise of <clears throat> MEA Modern Elder Academy was I was at Airbnb, I was their Modern Elder, I was going to write this book, Wisdom at Work: The Making of a Modern Elder. I started writing that down in Baja, in an hour north of Cabo San Lucas, uh, so in Mexico. Southern Baja, below the you know the state of the U.S. state of California, and as I was writing my book there, I had a Baja aha. I had an, an epiphany, and the epiphany was: Why is it that we don't have midlife wisdom schools, a place mm. where people in midlife can reimagine and repurpose themselves, cultivate their wisdom, and maybe reframe their relationship with aging? Yeah, and because actually, there's a fascinating stat from Yale's uh, Becca Levy. She says. That when a person moves from a negative to a positive perspective on aging, they gain seven and a half years of additional life. Sure. Pretty amazing. So started it and uh, we have over 3,000 alums from 42 countries who've come down to Baja and come to one of our programs. We are opening in Santa Fe, New Mexico uh, in early 2024 where there's an opera house there. I've conducted there. Yes. (laughs) I have not been there yet. So I'm excited to go there. Oh, uh, let's Yeah, let's go. Okay. Yeah. Uh, And uh, yeah. And we, our workshops are uh, generally speaking, helping people to imagine how do you go through a midlife transition, whether that's a, career transition or a marriage transition or your parents passing away or empty nest or menopause or 
health diagnoses. So there's a lot of things that people go through during this era. The average age of people who comes 54, but you know, we've had people as young as 28 and as old as 88. Hmm. So it's exciting because we're the first of our kind out there doing this. Yeah. And I love this idea of doing it in community. There's so much research that shows the number one variable for living a healthy, happy, longer life is your social relations, your sense mm. of community. To be in a cohort for a week where you get to learn about each other from the inside out as opposed to from the outside in mm. and to actually use a series of questions that are, create life-changing conversations is the gift that I have today to offer to the world. And it's not just me. It's a great team. Uh, my two co-founders, Jeff and Christine, as well as just a bunch of amazing facilitators and faculty. So it's important because, you know, I, I lost five male friends to suicide during the Great Recession, age 42 to 52. And and I had my own suicide ideation during that time as well. And I will just say that uh, we don't really do a very good job of helping people to understand midlife. Yeah, It's a life stage that's like the Rodney Dangerfield life stages. For those who don't know Rodney Dangerfield, he's a, an old comedian who said, uh, I don't get no respect. And midlife doesn't get any respect as a life stage. And so I've loved you know, the idea of giving this era of life, which is a long era of life. Midlife can last, depending on who you listen to. Some sociologists think, think it lasts from 35 to 75. Right. <laughs> That's a long time for us to not really be very smart about what is going to nourish and support and inspire people and empower them. Uh, and so that's what we do. I love what you're saying about how we don't we don't talk about that enough and we don't talk about this era of life. And we have these sort of silly tropes around it. Like, mm -hmm. oh, you have a midlife crisis and go buy a Ferrari yes. or something or you know, have an affair <laughs> or whatever. Yes. But that it is really, especially you're doing a lot of work in sort of longevity, mm -hmm. like the panel you were yeah. on this morning at yeah. South by, you know, get ready get for ready your hundred year, year life. life you yeah. Know? So, right. This is also, this is a part where, you know, a couple generations ago, like you said, you know, we would, this would be the burnout, you know, mm -hmm. kind of coming after retirement. But yeah. that's that's a very different thing. And it's really critical that as people advance, they feel like mm -hmm. what they've spent their time building and learning and the wisdom that they've mined out of doing that is, is important in our society yeah. and is utilized. Yeah, I, you know, when you listen to studies or read studies that show why do people commit suicide or uh, take their own lives in in midlife the two words that are that most come up are useless and irrelevant yeah and oh, actually i'm sorry useless and worthless with irrelevant being right behind that and you know that that in many ways is how society american society tends to look at people as we age you're not only not youthful but you're not useful either right right uh <laughs> and so I think one of the most important things we can do is in, in for people in midlife is to help them to see their gift. The, the meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. And mm. how do you help people to find their gift? How do you help them to know that there's something useful in that gift? And then how do they give it away? Because actually that's good for society. Huh. Uh, huge, yeah. right? I mean, what a gift. to. I mean, you for... will have mentees <laughs> if you don't already have them. Who you're going to teach your your craft to, right? And you, I'm sure, are already doing that. But as you get older, you'll have more of that because you had people do that for you. What would the world look like with more listening? We would have a we would have such a more respectful culture. Mm. The idea of being the other wouldn't be so frightening. Mm the ability to empathize and be compassionate would be accentuated. Mm. And our ability to tap into curiosity would grow. That's the magic ingredient, isn't it? Curiosity, I mean, to me, it's, it is that and openness to new experience yeah. are two of the most correlated variables to living a good, long, healthy life. Yeah. 
So being curious is, is, you know, something actually we do when we're very young and it gets sort of bred out of us in our teen years and then college. And then, you know, we're working and you're like, you have to put blinders on. And then especially in midlife and, you know, you have kids and you have all these things happening at once and you don't have time for curiosity right because curiosity isn't necessarily an efficient way of being right right and thinking so but later in life you can open up to it again yeah and that's the thing it's like oh wow being curious later in life is a gift but if it's been bred out of us and we have a fixed mindset and we're judgmental like we're not going to be curious totally and unfortunately the US is full of older people not exclusively. I mean, there's lots of really older people who are great and curious. There are a lot of older people who are not. They're cranky and they're n- not curious and they're judgmental. Yeah. Yeah. The last question is, if you were calling a meeting of the world, what would you like to teach them? <laughs> <laughs> if I were bringing the world together to learn something, I, I think the thing I would most want to offer is how to cultivate your wisdom. Because actually, it we live in a, a world where it's all about accumulating knowledge. Yeah. And all of that knowledge is in my iPhone. And the truth is that learning how to distill wisdom and understand how to tap into the wisdom will serve you well and serve people around you well and serve the world well. Mm. So as I talked about earlier and you know about my wisdom book, if I could teach every person coming out of college that this is a, something, a practice, a wisdom practice. So I, I believe that skills are to knowledge as practices are to wisdom. So what are the practices that I could offer younger adults mm. that would help them become wise? Skills are to knowledge as practices are, are to, to wisdom. wisdom. That's amazing. I'm going to chew on that one for a chew while. Chew on that one. <laughs> Man, thanks for doing this. Yeah. It's so awesome to meet you and mm. to sit down across a table and just talk about the work you're doing. Thank you for what you're doing. And I think it's wow. incredibly impactful and I'm really grateful we had a chance to talk Thank this you. week. And well, I am, I, when I'm at my best, I am not the conductor. I am the conducted <laughs> and I, I endeavor to put myself in the places where I can be conducted. Thank you for listening to Listening on Purpose, hosted by me, Timothy Myers. I hope you're enjoying our deep dive into the world of listening and that you're finding it useful in your life. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the show, please share it with others and leave a rating and review. That really helps. You can visit listeningonpurpose.com for show notes and to subscribe to our email newsletter, which includes special episode highlights, more information about our guests, advance notice of some upcoming special events and other news. You can find out more about me at timothymyers.com and from there connect with me on social media platforms like Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Listening on Purpose is a production of Extra Musical. Executive producers are Meredith Carter of Maduras Media and yours truly. Creative strategist is Julie Fiore. Listening on Purpose is edited by Brian Baltashevitz for Balto Creative Media. Our original music was composed by DJ Spar and performed by DJ and Kimberly Spar. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time for Listening on Purpose. Mm-hmm.